0: Uh, Today we will be in the book of Proverbs, we'll be in several different spots in the book of Proverbs, so if you want to go ahead and be turning there and while you are, I want to tell you a story. I once heard a story of a man that lived by the river. He heard a radio report that the river was going to rush up and flood the town that all the residents should evacuate their homes. But the man said, I am religious. I read the scriptures. God loves me. God will save me. The waters rose up. The guy in a rowboat came by and shouted, hey, you, you there. The town's going to flood. Come to safety with me. The man shouted back, I'm religious. I pray, I fast, I've loved the Lord and I know that He loves me. God will save me. And the waters continue to rise. And the man is standing on his roof with doom all around him and a helicopter comes by and lowers a ladder and the helicopter screams down, Hey you on the roof, you there, you're going to drown. Come to the ladder, come to safety. And the man said, No, you don't understand. I'm religious. God loves me. I read the scriptures. He will save me. Well, the man drowned. And in his death, he goes to heaven and he demands an audience with God. And he says, Lord, I'm a religious man. I read the scriptures and I pray. I thought you loved me. Why did this happen? God said, What are you talking about? I sent you a radio report, a helicopter, and a guy in a rowboat. What in the world are you doing here? We have all, at one point or another, found ourselves to be the man that's lived by the river about to drown in the perilous waters of decisions gone wrong and curious as to how we got to this point. After all, we are religious. We've read the Scriptures. We've prayed. We are assured of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That He is indeed strong to save. So what went wrong? Perhaps the greatest lie that Satan has convinced Christians of in the 21st century is that we can somehow achieve a flourishing faith on our own. That we can somehow ignore as the man by the river the grace of community and not only survive difficult decisions but thrive through them. A fraud has been perpetrated against the church. We have been told in subtle and not so subtle ways that the gospel and its work is about me and not about us. We have overlooked the reality that the New Testament writers went to great lengths to demonstrate that the central motif to describe the interpersonal relationships expected among God's people called out as the church, is that of family. In fact, there is no better way to come to grips with the spiritual and relational poverty that is individualistic Christianity in the West than to compare our way of doing things with the strong surrogate family relations of early Christianity that we see played out in the New Testament. And that reality is on display most vividly in how we make decisions. When we place our trust in the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit to make us acceptable in His presence and finally put an end to our strivings for self-righteousness, God graciously forgives our sins. He also, as Paul Tripp writes, adopts us as children. But so often the blessing of adoption is seen only through an individualistic lens. I am a child of God. This is true. But your adoption goes beyond an individual blessing. You have been adopted into a new family. The blessing of adoption is both individual for you and corporate for us as a family. Consider the Apostle Paul's writings in the New Testament. In his letters, Paul refers to Jesus as our Lord, that is, the Lord of God's people, his family, 53 times, while he appeals only once in his letters to my Lord. As you read the New Testament, notice that Paul uses brothers, as in brothers and sisters or siblings, members of the family of God approximately 130 times, to describe the relationship that we have with each other. The emphasis as we work page by page through the New Testament is that of a people called out by God into a new family with radical new allegiances. I cannot emphasize enough this morning the destructive influence that individualism has had not just in decision making, But on our very faith. We heard in last week's sermon that godly decision making begins in worship and ends in wisdom. Today, our task is to look at the role of community in the formation of wisdom in decision making. I want to demonstrate from the wisdom of Proverbs that we were not created to make decisions on our own. Church, it isn't good for us to make decisions on our own. As we are faced with tough decisions, even as the waters rise, God's best for us is that we are not alone. Friends, the way of wisdom is in the grace of community. God has called us into a family, this family, treasuring Christ church full of pastors and community group leaders and deacons and brothers and sisters here in this place, ready to take us to safety. So I want to begin today with the premise that we were not created to make decisions on our own. And I want to support that premise with two points. First, We shouldn't make decisions on our own because we cannot easily examine our own motives. And second, it is not wise for us to make decisions on our own because we are not in a position to provide our own rebuke. So before we get started today in Proverbs, let us ask God for help in this task. Father, we have gathered here because we believe that we are called together into a work that we cannot yet know the fullness of. Still, God, we trust the voice of the one who has called us out and into this family. And so we offer to you, O oh Lord, these things our dreams, our plans, our visions. God, we plead, shape them as you will. Our moments and our gifts, we lay at your feet that they may be invested toward bright and eternal ends. Richly bless the work before us, Father. The work of hearing from you together as a family this day. Shepherd us well lest we grow enamored with our own accomplishments. Or become entrenched in our old habits. Instead, let us listen intently for your voice. Our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your sweet spirit. Let us today in true humility and poverty of spirit remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your love in paths of your design. Amen. So church, we weren't created to make decisions on our own. Hopefully you're in the book of Proverbs. It's in the middle of the Bible pretty much. If you're in Psalms, you need to keep turning. If you're in Ecclesiastes, you went a bit too far. We're going to get started today in Proverbs 11. That's Proverbs 11, verse 14. Here the author of Proverbs writes, Where there is no guidance, a people falls but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. At the outset of chapter 11 in Proverbs, the writer seems to indicate that God delights in just weights. That is, weights that are heavy as they should be and not lightened for the purposes of fraud. The arrogant, however, have no dignity, but only disgrace. And disgrace in this chapter literally means lightness and are seen here to claim a heaviness they do not possess. This series of Proverbs implicitly links arrogance to fraud and deceit, while linking humility to integrity and weightiness. The author demonstrates throughout the chapter that sins don't come in isolation, and indeed arrogance brings us to this place in chapter 11, verse 14. Someone who thinks only of self has no regard for others. That person can easily resort to a whole host of sins. They can easily end up making decisions that lead to folly. In the text, we see that where guidance is absent, a fall is imminent. The Hebrew indicates here a militaristic tone that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament around battles and military conquests. And this means, in verse 14, that the safety that comes in an abundance of counselors is actually a type of victory, while the fall of the foolish is ultimately defeat and isolation. We see this theme continued in Proverbs 13. Look at verse 10. By insolence, nothing comes but strife but with those who take advice is wisdom in proverbs 13 we see the righteous contrasted against the wicked with rejoicing being the outcome of the righteous and demise being the end of those who are wicked a lack of counsel in the text leads to strife and ends in destruction look one verse back in verse 9 As the light of the wicked fades and is ultimately extinguished in their arrogance, it is the righteous in their humility, surrounded by counselors that endure. Counselors in this text don't just lead us into wisdom. They guide us away from folly. They keep us from strife. They deliver us into an enduring safety. They secure victory. Look also in Proverbs 15. Verse 22, the author writes, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. The text in this section of Proverbs 15 draws together two concepts. The wise versus the foolish son who either displeases or pleases his parents. And the importance, secondly, of counselors in being the one who is wise. In verse 21, we see that the straight path belongs to the one who is indeed wise. His joy held secure in understanding. To keep a straight course in the text is to avoid the pitfalls of moral failure in this life. It's not headstrong determination, but rather a humble resolve to pursue wisdom and find peace in the security of wise counselors. In verse 22, it is the wise counsel of others that keeps the son or daughter from ruin and indeed secures their victory, as in Proverbs 11. Do you see it? In the text, safety, security, success, victory, they come in the wisdom of a community of counselors among God's people. Without counsel, the people of God in the text invite strife, secure failure, and all alone fall to their demise. Spending only a brief time in the Proverbs thus far, we cannot conclude that it is wise, that it is good for us to face the major decisions of this life on our own. We cannot, even at the outset of our task in the book of Proverbs today, begin to think, For one moment that we were created to approach the task of decision making. Divorced from God's people. Robert Bella in his work examines the tragic implications of our individualism and isolation as a sociologist. And he finds that the origin and popularity of clinical psychology can be directly traced to the increasingly individualistic slant of Western relational values. In other words, the vast majority of people on the planet had little need for therapy until society began to dump the responsibility for making life's major decisions squarely upon their lonely shoulders. This is not to say that therapy is bad or even unnecessary, it can be a helpful, valuable tool to many who are suffering. But sociologists and social psychologists, many of whom are outside of the church, are increasingly noting the connection between the rise in our isolation and the surge of the prevalence of mental illness in America today. More than any other peri- today, more than any other period in history. We are intimately connected through technology and unaffectedly isolated in relationship. We know so much about each other without really truly knowing each other. Our freedoms, as intoxicating and exhilarating as they are, have pushed us toward a ruinous emotional fall. Indeed, we are reaping the consequences of decisions that were never meant to be made, lives that were never meant to be lived in isolation, divorced from community of God's people. And this seems rather hopeless, but church, this is where the gospel breaks in in power. God does not call us to a life of faith separated from the deep relationship of a family among his covenant people. The blood of Christ forms a new bloodline, calling from every corner of the earth, from every tribe and every people and every language, brothers and sisters of a new family, the people of God. And we want to make this so desperately some universal, far-off concept. And while it is a universal concept, it isn't merely or only that. The emphasis as we read the Scriptures Of brotherhood and sisterhood is within the context of local churches. Local churches. This church. The authors of the New Testament aren't writing about some not yet church universal primarily. But rather are writing to local flesh and blood here and now churches. N.T. Wright in his work, Jesus and the Victory of God asserts that in light of Jesus' words in Matthew 8, that the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command to leave the dead to bury their own dead is if he had envisioned loyalty to himself and to this new kingdom movement as creating an alternative and better family. Even in passages in the Gospels that seem at first glance To be markedly anti-family, we find Jesus, in fact, beckoning us, his followers, to the cross. Into his blood, his very bloodline, his very family. Look back at Proverbs in chapter 18. The writer says in verses 1 and 2, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expresses his opinion. This passage lies in the middle of what could be considered one big proverb, kind of 17 and 18 taken together. Examining the words, the language of the wise and the fools. In 18, one and 2, we find that the one who is isolated in breaking out against all sound judgment is exposed. Can you picture this? A family of people whose allegiance is declared to be the same as yours, holding you back from folly and you break out against all of that and run out on your own anyway. There is no pleasure for this person in understanding, and as they run out, they are exposed. Robert Alter explains that the sense of this verse could be translated a person cut off from other people constantly seeks a pretext for a quarrel, and by doing so, shamefully exposes his own weakness in the very situation that calls for patience and prudence. And while a fall doesn't seem necessarily imminent in this text, the weakness of isolation stands in view and is revealed in full in the words of the fool who can do nothing all alone but express his own opinion. Words, our words, are an index into our soul. By paying attention to the words a person says, it becomes apparent whether they are wise or foolish. And if a person can do nothing but speak their own mind, a fall cannot be far off. Church, there is wisdom, goodness in community. We were not meant for isolation. We were not meant to make decisions on our own. Because church, we can't examine easily our own motives. Look back at this text. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but expresses only his own opinion. Alter argues that what is being expressed in the fool's words aren't just his own thoughts, but his inner thoughts. In the Hebrew, the heart. And it is not an easy thing to know or to understand the heart. Jeremiah tells us this much in chapter 17, verse 9, where he writes, the heart, it is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who could possibly understand it? The truth about our choices. Is that we always choose. Church we always choose. What we think is our best good. We always choose the thing. That we are convinced. Will bring us the most delight. Elise Fitzpatrick writes. That we make choices. Based on what we think is best. What we believe will bring us happiness. Happiness even when I purposely choose to disobey God as Eve did, I always do so because I believe it's the best choice at the time. And this happens all the time in our lives. We limit the rule of God's reign in our lives to those neat, tiny compartments that have to do with spiritual things. We don't even recognize That we are claiming dominion over God as we do it. We declare that we can trust God for salvation and those other religious things. But when it comes to our marriages and our parenting and our careers, we know best. Our way is best. When it comes to living a disciplined and joyful life, God doesn't actually in his word expect obedience from us. Our disobedience somehow isn't idolatry or sinful fear or love of the world. No, it's something else completely. Others just don't understand. God doesn't understand. In Proverbs 18.1, what the fool seeks out is his own desire and in isolation has nothing left but his own words. The inner thoughts of his own heart And it's in this place, isolated from community, that the fool is at the mercy of his own thoughts and desires. Having broken free from community, deserted and exposed in the wilderness, he is now chained down to death alone. Do you see that contrast? Do you feel it in your own life? the escape from folly comes in the counsel of others. Community stands as a guardrail against a fall into sinful ruin. Look with me at Proverbs 12.15. Here the writer says, the way of a fool is right in in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. We need others because the default position of our heart will always be. We'll always be a justification of our own desire. As we are faced with decision, the way of personal fulfillment will always seem best. Church, the trek into folly always seems right at the outset. Todd Bolsinger Reflecting on the folly of pursuing the good life on our own rights. More than any before us, an American today believes that I must write the script of my own life. The thought that such a script must be subordinated to the grand narrative of the Bible is a foreign one. Still more foreign, more alarming is the idea that this surrender of our personal story to God's story must be somehow mediated by a community of fallen people we frankly don't want getting in our way or meddling with our own hopes and dreams. Friends, the trek into folly always, always, always seems right at the outset. It is indeed only in community that we find safety, a guardrail to keep us from a fall into sinful ruin. Look back at the text. This time at Proverbs 16, starting in verse 1. Here the writer says, The plans of the heart belong to man. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But it's the Lord that weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Righteousness in this section of the Proverbs is defined primarily as fear of the Lord. The fertile soil that grows righteousness in the text is humility, as we see from 1533 all the way to 167. Biblical righteousness is about trusting God over and against trust in ourselves our own way. Look back in the text in verses 1 and verses 3. In verse 1, the right pronouncement of the tongue is from the Lord. That is, what the tongue speaks in wisdom is from God. Throughout Proverbs, apt and articulate speech is conceived as a key to relationship among God's people and is indispensable as an instrument of wisdom. This means that verse 3 cannot happen outside of community. We need the words of God's people to help us establish this way. We cannot commit our work to the Lord on our own. This is real life for me. Several years ago, I received a call out of the blue. A job offer. The terms were attractive. The work seemed interesting. And for years before this moment, I had been working in a job that I honestly hated. I had struggled in my faith to find satisfaction or that God was for me at all in me being in this place, in this job. I tried time and time and time again ahead of this offer to find another job. And each time, even in circumstances that seemed absolutely perfect, the door closed and another door closed and another door closed. And now I was just starting to find this deep abiding satisfaction in God despite the circumstances of my work. And this job offer lands at my feet. It came with a huge catch. Tracy and I would have to live in Germany for two years to train and work. Everything about this job seemed perfect except the move. And as Tracy and I considered this offer personally, my heart was a wreck. I was all over the place. I wanted this so badly because it was something different. It would get me out of this circumstance. I was enticed by the increase in salary. We could adopt debt-free now. We could do other things for the kingdom. I also wanted absolutely nothing to do with the offer. I didn't want to move. I was comfortable here. I loved my community group. I had a counseling ministry in this church. I loved all of you. I didn't want an ocean between us. And at this point, I had been reading and studying some of the very things that we're talking about today. In this time, in this season, in God's providence, I had been learning about, seeing clearly for the first time the beauty and necessity of community and decision making. And now it was time to put up or shut up. So at the very outset, we leaned in. Before decisions even formed fully in our heart, we called everybody. We called a lot of you. We called the pastors and set up meetings with them. We sat down with each family in our community group. We sat down with other community group leaders. We sat down with singles, with deacons. If you answered your phone, you probably talked to us. We invited you to speak into our lives, to probe our desires, to interrogate our hearts, Because this decision, our decision, wasn't just going to impact us. It was going to impact you, every single one of you. And because of this, we were opening, completely open to pursuing yes or no, as long as it was with all of you. And through all of this, some of the best counsel came from what you and me, certainly me at the time, might consider an unexpected place. Some of the best counsel we got were from singles in this church. And this might seem counterintuitive. Wouldn't folks that are married in this church give you better counsel? Wouldn't they be able to explain to you the impact this is going to have on your marriage, on your adoption, on future parenting? And while counsel from couples in this church was valuable and it served us well, we saw clearly, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7, that single people are already with the kingdom program they are already concerned about the things of the Lord. And it was us married folk who needed the most help from singles in making this decision to sort out our priorities and to align our hearts, our desires to the work of the kingdom. So as we talked with so many of you, it became clear that this was an opportunity to further the kingdom of God and for the gospel to go forward into very dark corners of eastern Germany which meant that when we reached the decision to go, we weren't alone. And even though an entire ocean physically separated us from this body for two years, even in days, weeks of deep darkness in the lostness of eastern Germany, church, there was never a moment, a single moment that this body, you, our brothers and sisters, weren't intimately near It was a gift. And we would not have made it without you. But so often when it comes time for us to make decisions. We have already heeded our own counsel. And we come to others for a mere endorsement of what we have already declared to be best. And of course we know what's best. After all, we are religious. We read the Scriptures. We've prayed. We are assured of the love of God for us. How could God be against us in this? How could His people be against us in the decision that we want to make? And what ends up happening when others in our community, when brothers and sisters in this body point out the danger of the decisions that we are about to make, we are prone to reject their counsel and them and set out on our own way. Breaking out from the security of this body, exposed in weakness on our own, we set out. And we label those that we've left in our dust as controlling We assert that they don't love us. They never did. And then, as the consequences come for the folly that we've chosen, we blame them for deserting us. Like in the opening illustration, when a radio report comes urging us to evacuate, we don't believe it. As the waters rise and the consequences of our decision begin to become apparent, we reject the offer of the one in the rowboat and then turn around and blame the guy in the rowboat for the rising waters. And when at the end, with death staring us down as we drown in the flood, it is indeed our hearts full of pride that rejects the grace of community and goes down to Sheol. Death awaits us when we choose isolation from community. And we don't even see it. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say I have made my heart pure, that I am clean from my sin? Friends, the way of wisdom lies in the grace of community. It is community that guards us against the fall, because not only can we not easily know our own hearts, but when we stray, when we are exposed and alone, We aren't in that place, in a position to provide our own rebuke. Look back with me at Proverbs in chapter 10, verse 17. Here the author writes, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Here, it is hearing instruction from God's people that sets one on the path of life. But look at the text closely the implications for the one who rejects reproof are not merely individualistic. They're communal. Here, the counsel of God's people, the friendship of brothers and sisters, doesn't just help us avoid harm. It helps us do something. It puts us on the way of obedience. Paul Tripp writes that the counsel of brothers and sisters doesn't simply help us bask in the sunshine of God's grace. It helps us to roll up our sleeves and strive after holiness. Our own personal transformation in the gospel must be worked out within the family of God. There is no other way. Yet when we are situated within this family and still reject their counsel and shun their reproof, the implications are not for us alone. Look at the text, the rejection of reproof by the people of God leads others astray as well. First, it leads astray those who are outside the church. When we choose isolation over community, when we reject the counsel of family, we reinforce the culturally prominent belief that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over every other thing. But this is not the gospel Joseph Hellerman writes, the New Testament picture of the church as a family flies in the face of our individualistic cultural orientation. God's intention is not to become the feel good father of a myriad of isolated individuals who appropriate the Christian faith as yet another avenue toward their own personal enlightenment. Nor is the biblical Jesus to be conceived of as some sort of spiritual mentor whom we can happily take from church to church or marriage to marriage, fully assured that our personal Savior will somehow bless and redeem all of our destructive relational choices every step of the way. The gospel happens in community. And we reinforce for the world the misconceived notion that we can make it on our own while at the same time pushing further away still those who are already far off from God by rejecting the grace of community here. And church, the implications aren't just on the outside of this body. They're inside too. The rejection of community breeds strife and quarrelsomeness within the people of God and damages the very unity that is meant to stand as a testament to the power of the gospel in love. Rebuke is intended to be a regular part of the life of the people of God. Look back at the text in Proverbs 17. Verse 10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And in chapter 19... Verses 20 and 21, the writer says, Listen to advice and accept instruction, that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. We were intended as members, brothers and sisters of the people of God, to give and receive rebuke. Look at these texts. In Proverbs 17, wisdom is bred through rebuke as it goes deep into the heart of man, keeping him from folly. In Proverbs 19, ears that are quick to hear and listen to counsel and accept instruction, that breeds wisdom. It is the counsel of the community of God that beats back the selfish and arrogant plans of the heart and leads us into humble and righteous purposes of God. And if this seems hard, it's because it is. The early Christians made tremendous demands of their converts. Demands that would offend many of us today. The church had a word to speak into the lives of its members regarding what they would do with their lives, their vocation. Who they were going to do their life with. That is their church, their marriage, and their parenting. Where they were going to live their life. And reside. And how they were going to use what was theirs, their resources, money, time, and talent. And as we read the scriptures, do you know what happened? People came in droves. People came in droves. They saw visibly the grace, safety, security, and victory of living in the counsel and rebuke of God's people. They came in droves. But we are too quick, even at times in this body, to bend over backwards to accommodate the radical individualism of people who come to us to find a personal savior, who we then turn around and assure them in either our acquiescence or our silence is for them, no matter what decisions they make. All the while, Missing that the overwhelming tide of secular culture threatens to suffocate what is left of the spiritual life of our churches as the West becomes increasingly less Christian. The church insisted on the role of community in the lives of its members because it is essential to the work of the gospel itself. We are the ones who failed, we are the ones who fail still. Yet the triune God was torn asunder that we might be united to him and to one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, in his new bloodline, the perfect love, unity and joy that existed between father, son and spirit was demolished for a time for our sake, that we would be brought near into the kingdom of the beloved, into his very family. Church, every single time that you are tempted to reject counsel, to ignore rebuke of a brother or sister, remember that the Father, Son, and Spirit were torn asunder that you might be united to the person that you're next to today. The gospel is essential for what we're doing here. It's essential But it entails community. Look back at the text in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Genuine. decision-making entails the rebuke of the people of God a true friend a brother or sister living as they should provides open rebuke as love they do not stay silent in the face of a member of the family set out on a trek to destruction they do not hide their love away but demonstrate faithfulness in gospel correction Some today need to adjust their hearing, opening their ears and spirit to the counsel of community. Perhaps you have been arrogant or proud, set out on a track toward, destru- toward destruction, exposed and on your own. You haven't wanted the counsel of others, much less sought it out. Your hearing needs Healing. Some today need to clear their throats, opening their mouths to speak gently words of correction to those in this family set out on a way of folly and destruction. In either case, the problem lies not primarily in our ears or in our mouth, but church, it lies deep in our hearts. In isolating ourselves from community and counsel, we have been proud and arrogant and insolent and even quarrelsome. In keeping love hidden away, in keeping loving correction silent, we have lived in fear rather than out of love. We have feared others more than we have feared God. And the remedy today is the gospel of God in Jesus Christ, church. The gospel that calls us to the table, to the supper. I want to draw on Hannah Anderson's work in a book that's called All That's Good. As we consider what it might look like for us to come to the table with broken ears, with broken mouths, broken hearts. After all, isn't the table the very place that we should bring our brokenness? The table that belongs to the one who broke bread in the presence of his enemies. Whose cup overflowed as he dipped the morsel and gave it to the very friend who would betray him. The table that even today welcomes those who will crush Him and who will break His body with their teeth and consume His blood and take His very life to sustain their own. Perhaps part of testifying to the Lord's death must involve joining with those who have sinned against us, who we have sinned against. Because in coming to the table, we are forced to, To reckon with the fact that nothing else is good enough to draw us together as a family. And coming together, we defy the brokenness and proclaim a greater shared good. The gospel of Jesus. And as much as we must learn to discern goodness in the world around us, we must also learn to discern it within this body, this family. To see the goodness of this place despite its brokenness. Church, what is before us today is no small thing. The supper is not tiny like this cup. Especially for those who have been harmed in churches. Who have been betrayed and devalued and manipulated by those we thought we could trust. Such wounds don't heal easily. And when they do, they scar. But who better to understand this than the one who carries the scar of betrayal in his own body? Who better to understand this reality than the one who offers us today in the supper himself broken and bleeding for our healing and restoration and resurrection? So as we come to the table, we can't help but remember that he was broken long before we were. We can't help But remember His sacrifice and that it was God Himself indeed leading Him through the valley of the shadow of death and raising Him to new life, preparing for us a table for all those who come from east and west and every tribe and language and tongue and people to partake at this table, His body of His goodness. Today, surely this God can cause goodness and mercy to follow us too. Surely this God can heal our ears. He can heal our mouths. He can heal our relationships. He can mend our hearts and press us together as a family toward wisdom. Surely God can work in this place today to redeem our decision-making, to redeem this family, to hold us fast until the end. Let's pray. And ask God to do it. Father. We confess that we are weak and needy and in need of you. We can't heal our own ears. We cannot heal our mouths. We cannot mend our hearts. We need the work of Jesus. His blood spilled to bring redemption and healing. God, I plead that You would make a way today. That You would help us see the way and to walk in it, to press deeply into community. God, that we would confess our sin and find in the Gospel a treasure trove of holy joy. So God, where hearts are hard, Break them. Where there is contention in relationship, bring conciliation. God, bring healing to this place. Bring healing to your family today. God, we trust you to do this because you have already done the hardest thing. You killed your own son and raised him from the dead to call us your own. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.